In just a moment, we're going to open our Bibles and we're going to jump into the book of Corinthians. Before we do that, we are just going to pray again and settle our thinking uh, before we come before the Lord and ask him to show us more of what he himself is like. Lord Jesus, we are here this morning because you have got hold of us somehow. Your spirit has been at work in our life. And Lord God, we ask this morning that you would reveal more of who you are. Lord God, would you give us eyes and an understanding to, to read the scriptures that we have in front of us? Would you give us ears to hear what you would say to us this morning? Lord God, would you speak to us, please? We know that, we know that you knew we would be here this morning. You knew the passage of scripture that we would be having a look at. So, Lord God, in the middle of whatever is going on in our life right now, would you please speak to us? Would you reveal yourself? Would you let us know your great love for us and the power of transformation? Lord God, please speak to us. Amen. Please open your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be in Corinthians chapter 14. Um, and my eyesight is really bad, so I'm going to turn some more lights on. Uh, up the front. There we go. Awesome. I can read my notes now. Anyone else here got bad eyesight? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just wave. I won't see you. That's okay. Um, good morning, those of you who are visiting with us. Um, I know there's folk here from all over the place, from Queensland, uh, from Melbourne. Um, really good to have you here. We are in the middle of, well, ish a series in Corinthians and we are up to chapter 14 and this morning we're going to be having a look at verses 1 through 12. We're just going to recap a little bit of what we know about the city of Corinth and this original um, demographic of people that the Apostle Paul is writing to. Corinth was an incredibly um, important city in the ancient Roman world. It was geographically on the isthmus of Corinth. Try saying that five times really quick, it's difficult. And it was a city that had access to two ports. And as such, it was a center of immense trade um, and a center of very, very diverse culture that in the same way that money would be flowing in out of the city and different products and, and all those sorts of things would be happening. It was a city where because of, of the transition of people, you had culture um, changing rapidly and, and always had interesting things being introduced into it. We know that there was a very high culture uh, of worship of the divine female essence. Um, we know that there was a temple um, there, that there was a, a cult that, uh, that worshipped. There's stories going back uh, a long time before the time of Christ um, about temple prostitution and acts of worship functioning that way and all, all sorts of different things that we've looked at over the weeks and weeks that we've been in Corinth. But one of the things that we know um, from the letters that Paul writes to the different churches, as with other New Testament authors like Peter and John, when they write a letter, they're writing to a group of people who didn't have a church building. They're writing to a group of people who would meet together in each other's homes. This is still an era where the majority of people who had become followers of Jesus Christ were Jewish converts, some of them who had come in who, who were not Jews, um, those people would come in and they would bring with them all the practices of the surrounding culture. And it was this real melting pot of, of early Christianity and wrestling with a bunch of different things. And when they had issues, they would write to one of, their, one of their apostles or one of their kind of church parents 
The word apostle literally means a sent one, one who would travel around. Um, it's a word that we associate today with, with a particular um, spiritual status, um, but originally the word literally means someone who would be sent, the way we would talk about a missionary. So when Paul writes to Corinth, we can read between the lines and kind of get the gist of what was going on in the church of Corinth. And one of the things that we know was going on is that they really loved this this kind of weird Holy Spirit stuff that was going on, where people were having very powerful encounters um, with the Spirit of God. And as an outcome of that, they had these things going on, like um, people speaking in tongues and people prophesying, people interpreting, people having words of knowledge or words of wisdom. Um, these things were going on. And Paul here is writing to the Corinthian church to address some of the ways that they'd got carried away with that, particularly that they had got carried away with this one called speaking in tongues. And they had so elevated this um, kind of this manifestation of the Spirit of God, they had so focused on it that a bunch of other things had kind of got out of kilter. And that's what Paul is writing to the church to address in the particular passage that we happen to be up to. But he preempts that with the end of chapter 12 and what we have as chapter 13. In the original letters, there were not chapter and verse divisions, and it would have been read as one whole thing. So we're going to read uh, from chapter 12, verse 31, the whole way through to chapter uh, 14, verse 12, to kind of get back into the flow of Paul's thinking. Um, I'd love to do all of chapter 14 this morning. We can't do that. So read with me, please, from the end of chapter 12 through to about halfway through verse, uh, chapter 14. Um, and this is an NIV, which I've got up here on the screen, but read along and feel free to highlight and take notes as you go. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And these are all things that would impress us today, that we would think would be signs of someone's um, kind of inner spiritual life today. But Paul here is making a comparison. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Those are all the things that love does not do. It always protects. It always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Remember, Paul is writing to a church here which is obsessed with, maybe that's too strong a word, is caught up improperly emphasizing the gift of speaking in tongues. Verse 8, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, 
I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And we talked a little bit about how we've ended up with this um, kind of Christian civil war going on between people who believe that these things have ceased and some of the, the discussion around that and people who believe that these things have always continued in the life of Christianity and the body of Christ, even if they've not been part of our direct experience. I'm not going to go back over that this week. Um, I think the recordings are up online. We get into chapter 14, and here is Paul now speaking specifically about the behavior of the church. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue, or glosser, anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. Who understands them? No one understands them. They are the mysteries by the Spirit, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. It's the same word there as in verse 3. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? We'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 7, even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. And you might want to close your Bible on your finger because it's really cool and you'll read on. And again, Paul is about to, to talk a whole lot more about this topic. This is kind of part one of this topic this morning. Paul has an expectation that the gifts of the Spirit are going to continue being part of the life of, of that church. And Paul sees that here is a group of people who is not particularly using them well. And Paul does not say, stop. Paul does not say, stop what you're doing. Paul says, change your emphasis. View them properly. And what he is measuring these gifts by is this word, which we have up here in the red, which I'm about to mispronounce. Sorry. Can you, how do we pronounce this one properly? 
Okay. Oiko de Mayo. Okay. The, the word, the word literally means to, sorry, there's some people who actually are native Greek speakers in the room. That's why I'm a little bit nervous here, a little bit nervous. Okay. The word literally means to build up, like the way that you would construct a house. That's where the, the picture comes from. To build something up. And this is what Paul is calling the Corinthians to, to evaluate themselves about. And we can see when we get into the second half of, of chapter 14, what was going on is when the Corinthians would get together, everyone would speak in tongues. Everyone would speak in tongues. Um, we had that quote a couple of weeks back from Charles Spurgeon saying, sometimes I break forth into gibberish that I myself do not understand. And when Christians would gather together, everyone in the room would just start praying at the same time in tongues. And if someone walked into the room, their response would be, what on earth is going on here? And this is what Paul is critiquing them for because it seems like this was their norm. This was what their gatherings had kind of become. And Paul here is saying, actually, we need to talk about you prophesying because when you prophesy, um, we see here in verse 2, anyone who speaks in the tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They are the mysteries by the Spirit, but the one who prophesies speaks to people. It's great for you to talk to God, but when we get together in a group, we're actually here to build one another up. So we see here Paul giving them some things to measure by, and then he comes down to the practicalities of it from verse 6 onwards to go, we can see that there is a necessity. Things need to be clear. Verse, um, I think it's in verse 9 here. No, I've got that wrong. Verse 6. Paul here specifically makes a distinction to say, I can come to you and speak in tongues, but I'm no good to you unless I bring some revelation, apocalypsis, or knowledge, gnosis, or prophecy, or word of instruction, which is didache. We need to talk about prophecy for a minute. We're going to play a little video in a moment, which is still one of the best resources I've found to describe what biblical prophecy is. Because this is one of one piece of the argument that goes on. Paul is telling a group of first century Christians they need to excel in prophesying. And if we don't know what prophecy is, according to the Bible, we can end up with all sorts of kind of weird and crazy ideas and practices or expectations around what it means to prophesy. Um, one of those positions is often to say, well, prophecy is really just teaching. Paul here makes a clear distinction that prophecy is something different to revelation or knowledge or instruction. Prophecy is something that happens in its own category. Chris, can I get you to play that video, um, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about it. We already talked about those. Right. And what do they have to do with the prophets? God sent prophets in times of crisis, when Israel was headed for trouble. So if there was no crisis, then God sent no prophets. Well, who taught the people God's laws when there were no prophets around? Actually, it wasn't the prophet's job to teach God's law or help the Israelites worship God. That's what the priests did. So the prophets did what exactly? Prophets were kind of like alarm clocks. Beg pardon? An alarm clock is a wake-up call. If you're about to miss something important because you're asleep, like school or church or your wedding, an alarm clock goes off and wakes you up. It yells, hey, stop sleeping or there's going to be trouble. 
most people I know don't particularly like alarm clocks. I don't like my alarm clock at all. Sometimes people really don't want to be woken up. And the same was true of prophets. When Israel wasn't following the covenant, when they'd sort of fallen asleep in their relationship with God, God would send a prophet like an alarm clock to sound an alarm, to say, hey, wake up or there's going to be trouble. And just like with alarm clocks, it didn't always go so well. Sounds like being a prophet wasn't a whole lot of fun. Indeed. Oh, I've got a question. What? Oh, uh, okay, what's your question? What did they call it when they got a message from God? Did they just say, I have a message from God, or was there a special name? Uh, Sunday school lady? Interesting question. In fact, there is a name for these messages. A message from God is called an oracle, and in the prophets usually starts with the words, Thus says the Lord. Hmm, an oracle. Very interesting. So let's get into the first... I have another question. How did God give these oracles? Did he call on the phone, or were they text messages? Sunday school lady? Um, they didn't have phones, so they couldn't send text messages or emails. Sometimes God spoke to a prophet in a dream. The prophet would be asleep, and God would reveal something to him. By the way, there were female prophets. Deborah was one of them. But the prophets in this section were all boys. Sometimes it was through a dream, but most of the time it doesn't say how God spoke. The prophet just writes, And the word of the Lord came to me. So we don't know. But probably not a text message. Okay. So, jumping into the first... We've got one more question! Hey, caramba. How many questions have you got in there? An endless supply. What kinds of messages or oracles were there? Such an inquisitive mind, like a little sponge. Interestingly, there are four main types of oracle in the Old Testament. Indictment oracles, judgment oracles, instruction oracles, and aftermath oracles. An indictment oracle tells someone what they've done wrong. Sort of like a judge telling you in court that you didn't stop at a stop sign, and that's why you're in trouble. A judgment oracle says what will happen as a result of the bad things you've done. Since you didn't stop at the stop sign, you have to pay a $100 fine. A judgment has been made against you. An instruction oracle is a little different. Instead of giving a judgment, the judge just gives a warning and says, Maybe you didn't know this, but you're supposed to stop at stop signs. There aren't many instruction oracles in the Old Testament because all the instructions the Israelites needed were already given to them in the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. They knew what they were supposed to be doing. And finally, an aftermath oracle. The judge wants you to have hope for the future, so he says, After you've paid your fine, we'll clean off your record, and you can go out and have a great life. God never wanted Israel to lose hope, so he would have his prophet paint a picture of the blessings coming to the whole world through his people and his rescue plan. Oh, that's really cool. Okay, any more questions? Ian? Nope. I'm done. All right. Good. So let's dive in. Hang on, I got one. Oh, for the love of Pete, I'm out of here. Go ahead, Chuckwagon. Is it true that these prophets could predict the future? They predict what was going to happen, and then those things would come true? 
because that's really cool. Predict isn't really the right word. What do you mean? Let's go back to our courtroom. Say the judge gives a message to a helper, and the helper brings the message to a criminal, someone who has committed a crime. The message says, next week you will go to prison. Sure enough, the next week a policeman takes the man to prison. Should he say, wow, that helper can see the future? No, that'd be silly. That's right. The helper was just delivering a message. The judge knew the criminal would go to prison because the judge is the one who makes the plans. So the helper wasn't predicting the future. The helper was just telling the criminal the judge's plan. So the judge is like God, and the prophets are like the judge's helper. Exactly. God has the power to plan the future. The prophets weren't predicting the future. They were just telling the Israelites what God was planning to do. Right. So we shouldn't get too wrapped up in the idea of prophets predicting the future. Uh, prophets are messengers. God has a plan, and sometimes he reveals to us little parts of that plan in advance. There's no magic. God is just telling us what he already knows he's going to do. Got that? <laughs> Good. So here... So here we have Paul saying to a first century group of Christians, I desire that you would excel in prophecy. And the reason that he puts that to them is that it actually builds up the body. So we, again, we, we have our own experiences. We come from different backgrounds. Um, there are different groups of Christians that say, you know, these, these things wrapped up at different points in, uh, in early Christian history. And other groups that go, these things are still going on. These things are still part of us. These are part of the ongoing experience of the church. But it's not about telling the future. And I think one of the most dangerous um, and misused things in Christian culture, which I've come across, is where someone goes up to someone else and says, I have a word from the Lord for you. Very, very tricky, dangerous. What do I do with this? Because if this is something which is really from the Lord for me or for you, then that carries with it the most weight out of anything. I have to take it seriously. If this is just a product of that person's well-meaning or their good intentions or, or something which they've, they've perceived or, or they've thought, if it does not originate with God but it originates with that person, then it might still be encouraging, but it, but it holds a very different kind of weight. So what do we do with this? If we believe that, that these are things which have continued, that this, this is something that Paul is wanting the Corinthians to excel in, and this is something which continues even to our experience today. What do we do with this? What do we do? We have particular difficulty with this because the Baptist members meeting is supposed to be a prophetic act. If the same spirit that was on the prophets in the Old Testament, the one that was promised through them that would be poured out on all people, on sons and daughters, on men and women, that people would have dreams and visions, regardless of their age, that the Spirit of God would be as present with you and I as the Spirit was with those prophets, then it means that, that we have this expectation still that the Lord can let us know what he's already decided to do. 
or the Lord can let us know sometimes what his plan is. This, this is key to Baptist theology. I know that we're from a, a range of different backgrounds. But the idea that everyone is actually part of the priesthood of all believers, and when we come together to discuss something, we are not seeking the will of the most vocal person in the room. We are not seeking the will of the person who happens to be wearing a leadership badge. We are seeking the will of God, and that God would let us know what God's intent is for us in a particular place at a particular time. We're doing this at the moment as a church. This is part of why we are doing review is to go, Lord, would you please speak to us? Would you bring to mind the scriptures that are going to inform some of our values and decision making? Would you talk to us about what mission is going to look like for this next couple of years in the life of of this church and in this part of the world? Lord God, please lead us and guide us. This is actually how it plays out in our experience right now where we seek to be led by the Holy Spirit to know what God's will already is for his people in a particular place and time. This is a prophetic act. We are asking the Spirit of God to guide us to bring dreams and visions and conviction to explain the Scriptures to us, to bring them to mind, to inform our decision-making as a group. Paul's specific measurement in this is about whether it builds up the body. Again, this word, to strengthen, to edify, which I'm not going to try pronouncing again. Yeah, okay, that's all right. The idea that God would speak specifically to someone is something that Paul's about to go into in greater depth. But we need to let this eye... We need to let this idea sink into our thinking first and foremost that God actually cares. God cares about what is going on in your life. God cares about you. God sees you. God knows you. And one of the things which it seems clear from Scripture that Paul expected in the Corinthian church is that sometimes the Spirit of God in one of our brothers or sisters around us Sometimes the Spirit of God is going to tap on them and say, hey, here's what's going on, or here is what's about to go on. Here's what I've already decided. Speak to that person my words to build them up. When someone comes to us and they go, look, I I think I have something for you, and, and I think maybe this is the Lord at work, we need to consider, first of all, Every single word that person says on the basis of Scripture, the Holy Spirit is not going to contradict himself. If he has written this, he's not going to say the opposite through someone else. The second thing is we need to have a look at the fruit of the Spirit in the character of that person that's speaking to us. If someone comes up to me and they go, Bob, I really have a word for you from the Lord, and the person continually bags out Christianity, or continually just hangs rubbish on the church, if the person does not want to be subject to to the authority which God puts in place in, in different ways in the body, if the person does not want to be accountable, if the words that come out of that person's mouth are are always aggressive, always tearing people down, always the opposite of love, which Paul has just been talking about in chapter 13, 
then to go, okay, there's, there's a discrepancy between this person being the mouthpiece of God right now or the Lord revealing something to them and actually the fruit that comes about when someone is walking uh, in intimacy with the Spirit of God and is in submission to the Spirit of God and is being transformed into the likeness of Christ. I have to have a look at what that person's life actually looks like. We need to reveal that uh, we need to remember that the Holy Spirit always comes to reveal Christ, and glory is always given to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we need to remember that for Paul, the mark and the purpose of prophecy is to build up the church. So if someone comes and someone goes, "Look, I, I think that the Lord is is just tapping me on the shoulder and going, you know, here's a particular passage of Scripture for you to have a look at." Then they go, okay, we, we take these things and we weigh them and we measure them against Scripture. We look at the fruit of the Spirit of God that's supposed to be present in each other's lives and we are allowed to take it seriously. It exists for the building up of the body. Now that might be completely outside of your experience. You may have come from a background in Christianity where you have never encountered that. Um, a lot of these things seem to happen more in Eastern context or I should just say in non-Western Christian contexts. And the more I travel and the more I meet people, the more sanitized Western Christianity looks. We are tremendously respectable people. And sometimes our respectability is something that gets in the way maybe of what the Lord wants to do because we're concerned that we will look silly. And so in many in many places um, where I've traveled and, and I've had other people with me who've grown up in a Western context they encounter things like this for the first time in other countries. One more point and then I'll be quiet this morning. Paul is contrasting prophecy here, which is the thing that he wants people to excel in, with everyone just speaking in tongues all the time. Paul expected that in the Corinthian church there was going to be a, a continuing group of people who would meet together and who would actually be exercising the gift of speaking in tongues. And his expectation here um, is that they would interpret. Verse 5, up here. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Two points about this. The first one is that this verse has been taken out of context and has, has turned up in some peculiar things throughout Christian history. Um, there were even churches that built tiered seating along their walls. So if someone they knew had exercised the gift of prophecy in a way which they believed was authentic, they would sit in the highest seat. On the basis of this verse, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. We're going to put them on a really tall seat in a church. It happened. Okay, This is your history and mine. Okay, but Paul here says unless someone interprets, the measurement again is to go what is building up the body and he's not using the word greater to go that person's more spiritual or that person's closer to God. He's talking here about what has more traction, what has more effect in the life of the church and he talks about when people get together, we actually need to be saying things to one another which are intelligible. Does it mean that if you turn up somewhere and there is a church full of people, and they're all speaking in tongues that they are sinning. No. Nowhere does the Scripture say that that is a sin. Paul here says that it's not going to build anyone up, but at no point is it a sin. 
At no point is it considered damaging. It's more considered actually less helpful than it could otherwise be. That's what Paul is contrasting here. Let me share a story with you. Earlier this year, I had the chance um, to be with some of our brothers and sisters who love the Lord Jesus in India. And one of the places that we go, to, that we had the chance to go to, uh, was a house. I've chatted with with some folk here about it before. I know that in India, because of the caste system, because of the belief in reincarnation, there's a very strongly held belief that if a person is uh, is born uh, or acquires uh, an intellectual disability of some sort, that 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 is just and that that person should have that disability because clearly they've done something terrible in a previous life. And so people are not helped the majority of the time where they have an intellectual disability or a physical disability. They are treated as social refuse. And the stories are heartbreaking. I'm, I'm, I won't go into them now. But the, the, the guy on the far left in this photo is, uh, is a pastor and he just wanted to go out and he started finding these people. This is a house full of guys who have intellectual disability. Some of them are required, some of them are genetic, where they've been brought into his home and they, he just loves them. And they've been given a home. They get treated with dignity. They get treated with respect. They get treated as image bearers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are made in the image of God. Um, they are fed. Um, some of them get regular meals for the first time. Some of them get to have a shower for the first time. Um, some of them get, get treated with a gentle voice for the first time. And when I was there, um, I was there with a group of other ministers from Australia, and they treat us as the guests of honor, which is tremendously humbling. Where you go, I know who I am. I'm not a guest of honor. And they put you in, in the seat down the front, and then the pastor said, would you like the brothers to sing for you? They've prepared a song. And they stood up. And they sang. And I started recording it and then I stopped because I was just starting to bawl my eyes out too much. And I didn't understand a word of what they were singing. I did not understand a word. Was it edifying? Did it build me up? Oh, my word, absolutely. It's, it's not a common experience if you have grown up in a place where everyone speaks the same language. But when you go somewhere and you're in a room full of people that speak different languages, then all of a sudden you are in this situation that Paul is talking about. You're in a room and something's going on and, and you're on the outskirts of it. And it's not a bad thing. Would it be great if someone interpreted? Yeah, and, and we had interpretation, that was good. But sometimes because of... A lot of the baggage that we attach to people speaking in tongues, we run scared from it. When actually, you know what, being in a room and someone speaks in tongues and you wait for an interpretation and maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't, it is not terrible, it is not wicked, it is not sinful. Could it be a little bit more building up? Yeah, probably it could. That's the point Paul makes. If a church only meets 10 times a year, and every time they meet together, everyone is speaking in tongues and, and there's no interpretation. That's not going to build people up very well. But what if a church meets 100 times a year, 52 times a year on a Sunday morning, and then there's other associated prayer meetings and small groups and gatherings? Would it actually be okay 
for a church who meets together that frequently to go, you know what, we're just going to have a prayer meeting one night and if you want to come along and just speak in tongues, we'll ask the Lord for interpretation. And if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But we're not going to get carried away with it, but it's just a space. Interesting thought. Chris, could I get you to play the video of our brothers singing for us, please? That was all I could cope with. It is too beautiful sometimes and it is too wonderful to hear people worshipping God, even if you have no idea what they're saying, to know that they are proclaiming the goodness and the mercy and the beauty and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ sometimes is enough. So we have this question. What would it look like for us to so know the presence of the Spirit of God in us and among us that the words that come out of our mouth are the words of Jesus Christ to his people? What would it be like for the words that come out of our mouth to be so filled with prayer and waiting on the Lord that when we spoke to our brother or our sister, that we knew that it was not just our own bright idea, but that God had really laid something on our heart. And if the Lord has laid something on your heart for someone else, can God trust you with those words? Like what we heard about in the Old Testament, if the same Spirit of God is at work on us and the Lord wants to warn someone or if the Lord wants to explain to someone what's going on, if the Lord wants to to paint a picture of actually what life could look like if people follow his commands, even in the life of this church. Can God trust us with what he lays on our heart? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we see these different pieces going on in Corinth 2,000 years ago. We see a room full of people using the gifts in in ways that, that had become more about them and less about building one another up. Lord God, would you give us wisdom and would you, would you give us freedom around the use of the gifts? Help us to be measuring the gifts that we use by that same token, whether or not they are building up the body, whether they are edifying for the gathered people of God. Lord God, where it has not been our experience to be around brothers or sisters who speak in different languages, Lord God, help us to to find ourselves in that space, to hear people proclaiming you in different languages. Lord God, help us. Help us to really, truly, faithfully be followers of you. Lord God, you know our hearts. You know how passionately we are seeking you. You know what what we long for, for this community and for mission and ministry in this space. Lord God, please lead us and guide us. Even in this review process, which is going on at the moment in the life of this church, 
Lord God, please lead us and guide us in our thinking. Please help us to see what you already see and help us to be obedient. Help us to be obedient. Lord God, thank you. And Lord Jesus, to you and you alone, all glory and all honour and all praise now and forever. Amen.